Unbound Dead presents the LP, Literature in Practice. The system of education that we are sitting in right now was designed not to serve a whole host of students in spaces and places all over this country. We have to be able to grant students access to know more about where they are going, a sense of where they come from, history that's grounded in a way that looks different than what they're used to experiencing it. We live in a country where calls to address racism in education have been feverishly responded to with book bans, parent shaming, and instructional witch hunts. We also live in a country where calls to address racism in education have prompted institutions to invest in DEI, which stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Despite intentions, this isn't always effective because it isn't backed by another form of DEI, <laughs> deliberate, earnest, and inconvenient. <laughs> to be fair, this is hard work, but without the right reflections, mindsets, and bold maneuvers, our structures and instruction in schools end up staying the same. It really does take a village to get this right. Strike that. It really does take multiple villages to get this right. One village of experienced black women educators, Sharon Brinkley Parker, Tracy L. Durant, Kendra V. Johnson, Candace Taylor, Jahari Toe, and Lisa Williams came together to help other villagers and villages fight these injustices in their book, Humanity Over Comfort, How You Confront Systemic Racism Head On. Join us as this band of sisters and I discuss this book and explore strategic, people-centered ways we can address system-fueled inequities in our schools. This is the LP. Welcome everybody to the LP, Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourage student instruction to be more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. We have a very special episode today because we are rolling deep today because we, <laughs> we're talking with authors who wrote this vainglorious book, Choosing to See Humanity Over Comfort. We'll start with Dr. Sharon Parker. She has her degrees in health education and her EDD in urban educational leadership with a concentration in social policy. She has 20 years of experience as an educator, as a proud member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. That was probably the first thing I knew about her before I knew her name because she was pink and greened out everywhere. And then we also have Dr. Tracy Durant. She as well has had over 20 years of experience in the educational and nonprofit fields. Uh, she's been a specialist, director, executive director, program administrator, and learning assistance coordinator. And then she is a member of the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. And then we have the legendary Lisa Williams, who was already schooling me on some things about the politics in Maryland. Uh, she is a teacher, mentor, university professor, Title I director, and executive director of equity. She has her bachelor's degree in biology and psychology, an MA in psychology, and a doctorate in urban educational leadership. And then last, but certainly not least, we have Jahari Toe. She is a public school administrator with also 20 years of experience in the field of education and has a bachelor's degree from Morgan State University and a master's degree from Towson University. And then she's been a classroom teacher at the middle school level, instructional coach, professional developer, Title I specialist, AP or assistant principal, and principal in various school systems. Welcome, Sistrin. How y'all doing? We're doing well. Hello. How are you? I'm doing all right. Here we go. First question I want to ask y'all, what are your communication styles and how do they show up in a unified manner within one text? 
So I think I would be right on target if I started by saying that I think in commonality, our uh, communication style is very assertive, right? We have varying experiences. So the confidence level can be real. (laughs) In that same vein of us being really assertive in how we do things, we also are learners and open to growing and learning with each other, right? So that we know we are responsible for our own learning, but also responsible for helping to uplift our sisters within not just the book that we wrote, but just in day-to-day community. Like that's our approach. And that's the approach that we really took to um, convening and collaborating on this text, that we know that we are six unique individuals, right? Um, Maybe monolithic when you look at us as as six black women, but certainly our experiences are very different. It requires us to one, understand our community. And that's also the approach that we center in this book. Um, We don't just speak about community to people outside of who we are. We actually have our own community and have created that space in order to help each other learn and grow together. So we want our readers to also know that in doing this work, they too should establish community because the work is complex, right? It's, it's a great task. It can be arduous. It's going to lead to fatigue to some degree. And if you don't have others there to um, be with you in that and uplift you in that and help you work through, it can take a toll on your mental and your physical well-being. So though we assert a lot, we also um, are very compassionate with each other and listen and know that we are all seeking the same goal to make sure that humanity is extended over our own comfort. And so we, we drive with that. Yeah. Dr. Brinkley Parker, when you brought that up, it reminded me that I need to make sure that I included and shouted out and named the fact that there are two other authors, Kendra Johnson and Candace Taylor. Thank y'all also for uh, contributing to the book. Dr. Lisa, Sharon had brought up this idea of like having being assertive, right? And exercising grace. Like how did you witness that experience as you were writing the book or excuse me, co-writing this, this book? So as Sharon was talking, what I was thinking about is we blur the lines. In our relationship, we we completely commune in a way that blurs the lines. So we're, what I mean by that is we're all academics, as our resumes clearly show. We are all professional educators, as our resumes clearly shows. But we are mothers. We are people who are deeply interested in social justice, right? We are from a place that in so many ways is ground zero to some of these issues that that are pervasive. And now at this point, right, we are sitting in this moment where these issues are, are global and not that that is new, but that the visualization of it, right, in the ways in which I think social media, the ways in which the pandemic has sort of elevated climate change, like all of these ways that have taken these things that have been obscure and now everybody can see it, right? We commune around those things as a part of the different dimensions of our relationship. So when you ask the question about communication style and, and coming together to write, like the challenge, and I'll just name my own challenge, is not so much dealing with or even merging the variety of perspectives that we bring. It is that we got so many different ways to experience these issues and offer insights that using the writing style for me felt so it feels so limiting right because you got to feel this stuff you you gotta you know you have to witness this stuff it's it's just so many dimensions and so i find that you know the community that we are able to create and the complexity that we allow to exist within that community is part of the power of the work that we would invite the readers to consider 
if I could, Brandon, jump in. I think one of the things is we got to go back to the genesis of the book, right? And why we decided to write the book. We wanted to write a particular book in a particular way. And there, there's the analytical piece. There's the, the academic component. We're scholars. Like Sharon talked about this, this idea of us being learners. So we're scholars that, so when we get together, we're actually not having to spend time litigating our brilliance because we're all brilliant. Like we, that that's just what it is, right? So we, we can skip over that part. And to Lisa's point, I think get to this idea of the, the personal piece, get to this idea of lifting up emotion and feeling and our experiences, which I think you feel something and it is designed to invoke something because that's the way that we wrote it. Jahari, what are three words or concepts that are routinely used in the text that are important? It's funny when you were saying it, I was thinking like what three words, because I think it's like a thousand of them, but what keeps coming up to me is first the word humanity. I think that there's a redefining of what humanity looks, feels like that we mention in the book, even if not directly, but just like indirectly and just talking about like the space in which we occupy. Another thing that comes to my mind is lived experience. We focus a lot on the lived experience. We cause the reader to not so much jump out, you know, I, I want to jump and I want to fix. We dismantle the idea of fixing a person. We, we talk about our own individual lived experiences. We ask the reader to think about their own lived experiences as they sit in different spaces. And then um, I'm going to stop at the word power, but I swear I could go on for like days because I, I it's something about the word, the word power that is mentioned throughout the book, we define it because we are educators and we don't we don't share information that we don't create a definition, an operational definition for the reader to understand. But it's it's power defined and used in different ways. It dismantles what we're taught within our society about what power means. And it, it localizes it, it makes it internal. And it also makes sense on how we shift in different spaces and how we use power in order to, to do this work. And as it relates to the book, to explain a lot of the things that we fight against, the things that sit on us and make us uncomfortable, the things that empower us to want to do, our why and all of those other things. How do you all believe your text represents a connection with who you are and with a wider community need. I see myself all within this text just as, as a Black woman in society. And in terms of the larger community need, what I understand is that there is a need for me to be reflective about what that means for who I am, um, how I see myself, what it is that grounds me as a person, and making connections to the essence of who I am in comparison or in conjunction with who my co-authors be and with who the community is. And so seeking to help readers understand that the larger community means that you are introspective about who you are, where you sit, um, recognizing that within this work, a lot of things are going to happen. And we want to push people, just as I push myself from being transactional in the responses that I have to the ways in which race and racism are playing out, not just in America, but across all, all areas of the world. And that if those things that I hold true are not grounded in humanity, and if those things that the larger community hold true are not grounded in humanity, then we are, are really not doing the work that we need to do because we have to center that in order to understand like 
what is my place? What is it that I need to be strong um, held on? What are the things that I need to challenge when nobody else is going to challenge those? What is it that I'm committed to? And what is it that I would hope others within community are committed to in order to making sure that we get this thing right for the next generation to come, for those who have been historically marginalized and for those who don't see themselves as an active part in the educational structure as it currently exists. I want to take it outside of this book for a second because it's it's outside of the book, but it's still very connected to the book. Because as I was reading up on y'all backgrounds, uh, a lot of y'all are part of the same uh, Baltimore-based organization that, and, and please uh, remind me of the name when you hear me talking about it, but um, the goal is, is to t kind of make sure that uh, policies and practices are, are centered on equity in the area. Equity and education partners? Uh, Lisa, can you expound a bit about how that work kind of connects to what you uh, have funneled into uh, this book? Yeah, um, sure, certainly. So Equity um, EEP is our collaborative. That is the way in which we seek to partner with organizations, primarily educational organizations, though not exclusively, right, to deal with the realization of, of systems transformation. And I just want to kind of give it a bit of, of context. We are hearing lots of calls to reimagine, right, the ways that we we be in a whole healthcare. I mean, we, we could talk about all of these systems that are showing the limits of their ability to serve the pluralism of our community. The system of education that we are sitting in right now was designed not to serve a whole host of students that now are the majority students in spaces and places all over this country and have been for a long time. Parents oftentimes are fighting to get books to just see their children in, let alone have them be a reference point where, you know, the issue of representation is not constantly one of, of being negotiated. So in effect, because we have had so many different experiences from so many different dimensions of our person to be required to develop some skill, right? Some, some literacy in this work, some literal tangible how to do this work, some knowledge-based competencies, all of the things, all of the things that, you know, if we were talking about almost anything else, we would expect people to be able to demonstrate those competencies. We know that there are very few opportunities for people to learn how to do this work that doesn't reproduce the very inequities that oftentimes they are seeking to undermine or to, to dismantle. So our, our offering is less partner. It, it, that I know a thing is great, that we know a thing is better. And so thinking about the ancestors, thinking about our responsibility to constantly be a part of making this democratic experiment be the thing that Black people have always believed in about this country, even when the country didn't believe it about itself, for me, is a part of, of what our work at EEP represents. I want to jump into some questions. Each question will be for each of you individually. So the first question I want to ask is of Miss uh, Lisa Williams. The book shines a spotlight on three forms of power, positional, relational, and expertise. What would you say are internal and external factors that tend to exist when folks exercise these powers counterproductively and how can they successfully turn it around? A really problematic external factor impacting those three forms of, of power because we talk about them 
but power in general, is that most of the models that we get around leadership, and I'm going to associate leadership with, with power, just from the perspective of having like the authority to, to actualize a thing, mm-hmm. are rooted in a, a models of dominance. And I was, I was thinking about this, you know, even now, leadership courses that people take don't sort of challenge them to think about distributions of power, right? Don't think about co-powering, right? Don't think about how spaces are constructed to constrict power. So a huge factor externally is that the models that we are most exercised on, if it were a diet, it would have us all in cardiac arrest because they're not healthy models. They're not participatory models, right? They're not models that suggest that you can be functional and collaborative, right? Like all that for many people that that idea is like the abandon of all structure that we might co-construct the decision. And I find that that orientation is so narrow and rooted in a reality that just doesn't exist. You know, when we're talking about widgets, when you're talking about a much simpler society that we can kind of itemize things that we don't have to wrestle with complexity, that is a period that has come and gone. We are in a much more complicated world and and collectivity and collective brain power and all of those things are really important. So I think that's an external factor. I think internally, one of the things that, that complicates our ability to really think differently about power is that we are taught to not even analyze how power is showing up in a given situation. I am the principal of a school. But how often is somebody having any conversation that causes me to reflect on how I am using that power, right? Often when you talk to teachers, they believe they, they have zero power, right? And so you, you got to have that conversation. Kids don't decide on curriculum. Kids don't decide on grades. Kids, let me tell you all of the things that are consequential in the lives of children that they have no decisions over unless you are willing to reflect on is there an opportunity to power share? Similarly, the whole question of like relational power which for, for us is like, that's the root of real where transformation can happen, right? If you and I can influence one another in ways that broaden and extend humanity and create a vision that is different than this one that we are often trudging through, but is not serving us well, right? How can we do that? Transactional relationships are so much the orientation of so much of our work, right? Again, all of what I'm sort of lifting is the internal barrier, the internal challenge is that we don't get cultivated in reflective practice that would call us to an ownership around the ways in which the power that we have is playing out to often perpetuate the very things that we would profess consciously that we don't want to be a part of. So the external piece, lack of models that show a different way of being, the internal piece, lack of nurtured reflective practice. Tracy, six people wrote this book. (laughs) How did y'all model some of the ideas about anti-racist leadership in your book throughout the writing and publishing process? You know, it's a a gift and a curse to be with five other brilliant women because we all smart. So we all got a lot to say about a lot of things. I think that the answer to the question is rooted in the book itself. So if you pay attention to the three parts of the book, around reflecting, making meaning, and doing. Like, that's how we wrote the book, right? We, we spent time, you know, in those the, in those spaces, which is why it was so easy for us to name them as parts. 
The other thing is it's in the titles of the chapters, quite frankly. And we talk about things like community and we talk about accountability. We talk about invisibility. We talk about productive struggle. All of that was present in the writing of the book. And so what we continually came back to, right, was like, whose voices are we hearing more? So we're interrogating power. To Lisa's point about power, like we're interrogating power. Like, you know, who, who's quiet in this particular meeting? We're, we're going through the book. Who hasn't said anything? What's that about? Is it because, you know, it's my, it's a chapter that I contributed to and I'm, I'm feeling a way about the feedback that my partners are giving about what's in it? Like, you know, who's paying attention to, to how I'm showing up, for example? So I think it's important to understand that we center those things. First and foremost, we sense a community. We sense it at the end of this journey of writing this book. We all still going to be together. We all still going to be partners. We all still going to love each other. So let's not do anything as a part of this process that takes us off track, right? Let's come back to this idea of continuing to center our humanity. And in the moments where it is uncomfortable, let's remember what we wrote about. So one of the things that we, we kept coming back to, and even now, you know, as part of our practice, did we just write a book? Or, or does it really have meaning? Are we are we living what we wrote about? Like, are, So we call each other in. And so holding ourselves accountable for doing the things we say we are trying to do, and not just in writing the book, but in who we are trying to be in the world. So, so the book is a manifestation of six Black women who are trying to be, you know, all of the things that we talk about in the book. So it's not just, it wasn't just a, a task for us. It wasn't a project. It literally was a labor of love because it was a pouring out of like all of the things that, that we are trying to do. And so how we hold ourselves accountable, how we care for each other, how we call each other in, how we interrogate behavior, all of those things came up in the writing of the book and I gotta tell you there are moments when I go back and I'm looking at chapters and I'm reading it and I'm like this this is amazing Jahari why advocate and agree to a structure like this for a book like this the word that sticks out to me is advocacy right so just a small moment I remember thinking even before really jumping into this work but just understanding Trying to, trying to understand equity was the idea of like, what does advocacy mean? And so I used to believe that advocacy was about speaking on behalf of those who have no voice, right? But that's a that's coming from a place of privilege. And and actually in reading and working on this book, that, that idea was dismantled. So looking at advocacy as if I have the position or if I see a thing or I can use my relational power, my positional power to create space. The idea is not for me to speak on behalf of others, but to create space at the table and let them speak for their experience, right? Because it's not my job to put words in someone else's mouth. Their experience is what matters. So in thinking through that, we're advocating for the journey and the process, not the final destination. As we model in this book, we purposely call out these spaces where we ask folks to pause and reflect, where we say, you know, the thing that hasn't been said, when we ask people to journal, we do it intentionally because this is about the process, because this is about lived experiences and the things that will come up when you read the book. Just to Tracy's point, when I reread certain chapters, I still have awakening moments. I still have moments that disrupt my current beliefs. And I'm a co-author, right? I still have areas that level like an emotional charge based on different things that have happened to me. That structure, advocating for a structure that asks the reader to stop and to think and reflect shows a space of honestly honoring humanity. Like, where are you in this moment? 
This is not about the goal at the end. This is about where you are. Every chapter is going to hit you different. Definitions are going to hit you different. We want you to pause and reflect and think through what this means to you right now. Not through Jahari's lens or Lisa's lens, but through your lens. Because as you reread, your awakening starts to change. Our advocacy is honestly about the reader being in their, their very most human space and charging them with honoring the process and not the end result and being intentional behind doing it. Sharon, it was interesting to see uh, you talk about adult learning theory or excuse me, you all include adult learning theory in this framework as a container for what and how people develop an anti-racist identity and walk. What are some of the most important things that developing equity-centered system leaders should understand about adult learning? The question to me encompasses two things. One, sort of what are we centering with the framework? And then the other, what are the things that we want people to, to be able to walk away and understand? And so in the development of the framework and thinking about the ways in which we wanted it to be situated. We want people to understand that one, this framework is a tool for engaging in the planning of those anti-racist operations that we talk about, but really grounded in the two questions that are on the outskirts of the framework. And that's about like, how do we build community? And then how do we normalize adult learning within organizations, right? So the, the framework really employs people to consider race and how it intersects with your other identities. When we talk about gender, when we talk about class, when we talk about the ways in which you know you, you learn, like those kinds of things. And so if we talk about adult learning theory as it relates to how you respond to learning, I would want for people to understand that one, people orient based on their experiences, right? And my motivation to learn is really predicated on the ways in which I'm seen in an environment, whether or not I feel like I'm valued, whether or not I feel like there's a motivation to do. Sometimes there's that extrinsic factor that people just kind of naturally gravitate to something tangible that they can see or feel. And then in, in other situations, it's this readiness, this inner desire to learn and to be. And so in order to develop that, I think that people have to be willing to do the work individually and collectively. And that's part of that adult learning. Part of that adult learning also means being brave and, and daring to say the things that people won't say, even when it defies truth as we currently know it, right? It disrupts a level of normalcy that people will have. And in that disruption, we recognize that people are going to be harmed. And so if I know that that is going to happen, I'm now creating space for people to work through that dissonance. I'm acknowledging that every learner is going to um, respond to it differently, right? And the knowledge that I get from just those experiences, even in the harmful times, are going to elevate me to be in a position to situate myself to be a learner once again. So that means community is key because this work is a lot, like it's heavy, it's labor intensive, and you need to have the full armor. And sometimes the full armor won't be within. It'll be something that you gain from, you know, the work with the people who you are in space with, um, the, the people who are allies within this work, all those who have committed to that same journey that you have committed to. In understanding the framework, we know that our awareness and our consciousness is going to be situational. There are going to be some situations that we respond to immediately based on experiences that we, we had and we'll be connected completely. And then other times we're really not going to know how to respond, what to do, um, what's confusing about it. And so we want to make sure that 
we're in a space to be courageous, to admit like what we don't know, to say the things that are, are hurtful to us and to also um, be willing to learn and to work it out. Lastly, I would say that we have to center what we put as the title of the book, Humanity Over Comfort. We got to grant authority to those who have been historically marginalized, uplifting their voices, making sure that they're not left out of the conversations. And when they're not able to be within those conversations, certainly having the, the qualitative data that we know is present that says this is what we need to consider. And we have to trust each other and be committed to that because this is how we get to the point of changing the things that we don't desire to see anymore. I did want to close with one final question. How does the book, how is it designed to help support folks who want to make instruction more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful for students? I first want to just acknowledge, I think what we started the original conversation off with is that when you see us, like our experiences are not monolithic. If we honor the fact that there's difference in culture, there's difference in race, there's difference in ethnicity, difference in our, our gender identities, all of those things, then this book can help our readers look at instruction by first acknowledging that learning needs to be co-constructed, right? We have to be able to grant students access to know more about where they are going, a sense of where they come from, having history that's grounded in a way that looks different than what they're used to experiencing it. Being able to admit that maybe the ways in which we learn is not the ways in which we need to give instruction for our students. We also want our readers to acknowledge that multiple perspectives exist and understanding that there's a role that culture plays along with other identities in shaping the ways in which people experience educational systems. And that's paramount to their overall success. It requires that teachers are welcoming. It requires that they affirm students in their full humanity, not just kind of who they show up and look like on the outward physicality and all of their other identities, helping them to recognize that they too are valuable, right? Their contributions matter. And that when you tap into those streams of knowledge, that means that they see you as human. They recognize that they can feel free to make mistakes and you honor those mistakes and you help them to grow and learn. I'm gonna take a different position than Sharon, namely because I'm thinking about my five-year-old. And one of the things that his pediatrician told us, you wanna understand how he sees the world, get down on the floor and look up. Because you standing up here and you see it this way and how he's uncovering and discovering the world is, is way down here. And I think that that was so profound because in all my years as an educator, nobody asked me to, nobody required me to ever get down on the floor and look up and try to figure out how the kids see the world, what's important to them, how they can tell. And I think that's fundamentally the shift. And when you're talking about Black children, they, if we didn't do it for, for others, we certainly don't do it. You're talking about students with disability. Think about all of the ways in which different student groups experience marginalization and what it would actually mean for adults, good old seasoned adults, right, who got all these degrees and all these certificates to get down on the floor and see how they see the world and use that as an entry point for learning. That's what we're trying to get folks to, to think about from the context of education when we talk about humanity over what's comfortable for you. This spin of the LP with Drs. Sharon Parker, Tracy Durant, Lisa Williams, and Johari Toe left me with a few things to reflect on. I'm thinking about the way the book was written and how it models the way we cultivate equitable instruction. Collaborative brilliance and expertise, 
grounded in humility and honesty, can produce an experience that pushes the comfort and capacity of the learners. Speaking of comfort, in this era where DEI initiatives in education are starting to fade out or be phased out, we have to ask, were the conditions even set up for the work to take place? If not, what personal or professional harm was created as a result? And what opportunities for equitable instruction were missed? This work I'm seeing can lend to an honest analysis of power. The power we have, the power we don't have, why we do or don't have it, the power we have and exercise, the power we have but don't exercise, all this can lead us to spaces of heart and mind that can help us create new spaces of policy and practice for the classroom. Lastly, I'm realizing that conflict can cause chaos, but with intentionality, it can craft collaboration, the kind that can lead to a powerful change in how we deliver equitable instruction. Collaborating with intentionality is hard, but if we place humanity over comfort, the way doctors Parker, Durant, Williams, and Toe suggest, then I think we have a chance. If you'd like to get more info on this episode's author, the featured text, and how you can apply your newly acquired knowledge in your profession, we got you. Check us out on the LP website at unboundedorg forward slash LP. You can also check us out on social media. Find us on LinkedIn or Facebook, or you can find us on Instagram at Lit in Practice Pod or Twitter on Unbounded the LP. On your social or podcast platform, please leave a review and let us know who you'd like for us to interview next. This is Brandon White. Thanks for listening to the LP, Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourages student instruction to become more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Peace and progress.